0: Turn with me to Acts chapter 14. You may be looking at what text we're reading and wonder, is that a misprint? Are we really only looking at two verses? The answer is, it's not a misprint, and yes. um, I'm going to read a larger section than what we're going to consider as one overall thought, uh, but we're going to focus our attention on verses 21 and 22 shortly. But before we read the Bible, let's ask the Lord to help us. Let's pray together. Lord our God, we pray that as we come to this Your Word, that You would open our eyes, that we would see wonderful things in Your law. We pray, Lord, knowing that we are dependent upon You to show us and teach us, that You would break this bread of life before us and make our hearts ready to receive. And we pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, friends, if you're able, would you stand with me for the reading of God's Holy Word? Again, Acts 14, we're picking up in verse 21. When they, that is, Paul and Barnabas, had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Ataliah. And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. When they arrived, they gathered the church together. They declared all that God had done with them and how He'd opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. Thus far, God's word, and may He be praised. Brethren, please be seated. We have a saying in my house, sort of a saying. There's tired. And then there's Peru tired. You may wonder, what is that? Well, most of my family have been a part of Grace Church mission trips to Peru through the years. Trips where all involved have something like 12 to 16 hour days, teaching VBS, playing with children, traveling to different cities, plus devotions, plus conferences, plus manual labor, painting, sweeping, holding nervous children about to get their teeth pulled. And then there's the mental effort involved, trying to communicate uh, in another language if you're able to do that, or trying to speak to someone with broken English and concentrate. Uh, the ability to have gospel conversations and edifying helpful talks with the team. And when you throw this in over the course of five to seven days, plus the red-eye flights going and coming, I'm really selling going on a brew trip. on a. It teaches you another level of fatigue. Now, it's not just Peru, of course. When I've traveled, say, to the UK, speaking all over England multiple times, it's usually something like eight sermons in ten days plus hundreds of conversations with new people or old friends encouraging them, answering questions, giving biblical counsel, trying to get a little sightseeing in. The wear and tear on the body is significant. Now, in both of these cases, it's absolutely worth the expended energy, but endurance is needed all the way. And as God provides that endurance, there's truly an exaltation of His name and His grace who enabled these great things. Well, that's the kind of endurance that we're seeing in this text, but this endurance I think is endurance on a whole other level. Paul and Barnabas are coming to the end of their first missionary journey And they are spending themselves for the saints. They are no doubt weary in the work, but not weary of the work. They've been laboring to encourage these believers to endure, to stand firm in the faith as they face various troubles. And we're really just taking a little snippet of this section, which we're looking at in two parts, but this morning we're just going to see two things as Paul is at the end of his journey. First, I want you to see with me, Success and service. It's really two things in one point, but follow along with me. Success and service in verse 21. Now, if you remember, we left our previous passage last week with the bruised and battered Apostle Paul starting a 60-mile trek roughly by foot from Lystra, where he had just been stoned and left for dead, now to the city of Derby, In a view of Paul's condition, it may have taken a week or so to go that far. But when Paul and Barnabas arrive in Derby, they get right back to preaching. Luke doesn't give us all the details we might want to know, but note what he does say in verse 22, almost in passing. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples. Again, it's just a passing comment as Luke is really moving on to the next thing. Sorry, that's verse 21. He's really moving on to the next thing, but his brief report broadcasts success. Uh, for one thing, there's nothing here about persecution. It's just when they had preached the gospel, that city had made many disciples. For the first time in months, the Jewish gospel opponents are not attacking Paul with slanders or stones. In Derby, we simply hear about Preaching, or more literally, about evangelizing and discipleship. And I really want you to note the relationship between those two words. As Paul preached Christ in Derby, we know not everyone was converted there, but there was great success because we hear that by grace they made many disciples. That is, many people turned from their sin to Jesus' saving mercy, and additionally, in their turning, they yearned to learn of Christ. Now, the ESV doesn't quite capture the sense here because it makes, it makes it sound like the evangelizing itself made disciples. But there are really two actions. There was evangelizing. It's the word from which we get evangelism, but here, preaching the good news. Preaching Christ. Seeing sinners converted in this new town. And then those numerous converts were Discipled. They were trained in the faith. This is the same word that were for discipleship that Jesus used in the Great Commission when he told his apostles, Go therefore, and make disciples of all nations. How is that discipling to occur? You don't preach to them once, hear that they confess their faith in Christ, they they raise a hand, they walk an aisle, they sign a card or whatever, and then that's it. No, Jesus said, Make disciples by baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and additional action, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. What Paul and Barnabas do in Derby, though again Luke's giving you bare bones, is share the gospel, receive people into membership as they are baptized, And then they start the work of instructing these new converts in the things of the faith. We have no idea how long this went on. Luke doesn't tell us. It could have been weeks. It could have been a month or two. But it's important to note with the language that Paul uses that Paul and Barnabas aren't blasting into town, counting the numbers of all the people who said they believe in Jesus, and then just leaving. They are ensuring that people are incorporated into the church. Evangelism is not complete. Evangelism doesn't achieve the goal if there's no attachment to the church and the start of discipleship. Let me say that again. Evangelism does not achieve the goal. It's not complete if there's no attachment to the church and the start of discipleship. A disciple of Christ is not a person who responds to one sermon. A disciple is following Christ, listening to Jesus' voice, being trained in the faith. And brethren, surely this teaches us an important truth in our post-Second Great Awakening revivalistic evangelism and climate. We are not interested in simply Sharing the Gospel with as many people as we possibly can and counting those who say they commit. We don't want to see mere professors, rocky ground hearers in the way that Jesus talks about it, who receive the Word with joy and then they fall away because of trouble. Or even those who are thorny ground hearers. They appear to accept the Word, but then that Word is choked out by the anxieties of life, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desire for other things. No, we want to see people profess Christ, connected to the church, added to the number of the people of God, and then growing in their faith, grounded in the truth, evidencing the fruit of following Jesus. That's what Paul and Barnabas are seeking because that's the mission that Jesus established for the church. And maybe it begs a question for us. We should do some heart searching. Am I truly a disciple? Am I taking in the Word and being trained in all that Christ commanded? Do I see success translated that I'm walking in the way of faith, walking with Jesus among the people of God? That's what true conversion looks like. It looks like someone who now walks with Christ. Grace came to save us, and the same grace that saved us is grace that also trains us. But then, think about our own evangelistic efforts. We don't want mere confessions. We want people assimilated into the life of the church and trained. Doctrinally grounded, set on the path of righteous living, love to Jesus compelling all that they do. These are the things that will continue to be the focus of Paul and Barnabas as they go out through all their missionary journeys. For again, just a brief statement, but one with massive ramifications. Look back at the text, verse 21. They decide, after these people have been converted, they're in Derby and are being discipled, they decide, verse 21, to now return to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. Why? Look at the purpose. Verse 22, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith. Now more on the strengthening in a minute. But right now, I just want you to think about the return trip. I'm sure Paul and Barnabas are spent from months of travel across seas, over mountains, with frequent preaching and teaching. And that's not even to mention the persecution they face. And now as they, they look east, there's beyond Derby, Paul's hometown, Tarsus in Cilicia, and then further east, Antioch, where they started. It's a little over 200 miles back to Antioch, but it's a much much shorter trip than going all the way back that they had come thus far. However, what did they decide to do? They decided to go back through all that laborious work where every town they had preached the Gospel. Now, friends, that would not require just a lot of time. It would require a lot of effort. Why do that? Why risk further attack? Paul was nearly killed at the last place. Isn't it just easier to go home? But Paul and Barnabas, as shepherds of souls, aren't interested in hitting the easy button. Do you want that in your life? The easy button? Or just make it easy? No, they don't do that. They don't live for themselves. They're not after their own comfort and safety. They are servants of Christ who've been called to spend themselves as they serve Christ's people. Indeed, there's a fatherly concern here for those in the faith. The thought is surely, how are our spiritual children doing? How are they facing the trouble from the world? How are they applying the Gospel to their particular lives? Paul and Barnabas are concerned that the persecutions that have come against them and now coming against the churches might rock the disciples and shake their faith. So they want to go back. And they want to check on all of these people, help all of these people, keep teaching all of these people that those people might endure. What a sacrifice that is for Paul and Barnabas. They're going back to places where some tried to stone Paul. Actually, did stone Paul. Others plotted to stone Paul. Threatened imprisonment. Got the, the leaders of the town to attack Paul and Barnabas and kick them out. But again, they're going back because their thoughts are not for their own skin. They want to see believers thrive, grow in the midst of a hostile climate. Surely, dear friends, there's something for us to learn here, and that lesson I think starts with our elders. Brothers, we are called to shepherd souls, and that call is demanding. It requires sacrifice. We have to die to ourselves. We have to put away the path of ease and self-interest and spend ourselves to serve the people of God. We are going on the last day to give an account for how we watched over God's people. How we nourished them. So it's our duty, as best as we can, to lead people to heaven And to see them endure, not coming up short. To keep encouraging them to press on in this world of trouble. And if we do that well, it's going to mean more time, more effort, and constant instruction. Well, that's the model Paul and Barnabas are setting. That we have to have a commitment to the sheep. What did Jesus do for the sheep? He laid down His life. That's what shepherding is. We lay down our lives. Brothers, I'm I'm talking to myself as I'm talking to you. Is this the kind of heart we have for service? The Apostle John, when he writes the letter that all of you have memorized because it's so short. 3 John, verse 4, when he writes 3 John, he says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. That's the pastoral heart. That we must have, and it requires sacrifice, but it's not just the elders or even the officers, because the deacons also sacrifice much, give of their time, aim to help the people of God. I think there's something for everybody to learn here. The nature of the Christian life is one of sacrifice Philippians two three and four do nothing, do no thing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in in or with humility of mind, consider others as more important than yourself. Have the mind of Christ in you. Have the attitude of Jesus who laid down His life so we are to be eager to lay down our lives for the good of our fellow believers. Practically, what does that mean? We give our time. We give our effort. We give our resources to help each other run the race to the end. There's a Principle of Mutual Concern. What's that what we're doing? Y'all know we live in a self-absorbed age. A day of individualism. The individual mindset dominating us. We live in a culture of leisure. Everybody's working for the weekend. It's an eighty song, but it applies still, maybe even more so than when it was written. These cultural things inevitably touch us all. We would be silly to think that they didn't. But here's a crucial fact. Nearly every commandment in the New Testament is given in the plural. Y'all do these things. All the one anothering texts in the New Testament, think about them. They demand that we love one another, encourage one another, that we guard each other against the deceit of sin, that we spur one another on to love and good deeds, that we speak the truth to one another, all with the aim that everybody finishes the race. Is that the way that we're approaching our Christian life with respect to our fellow Christian? Cain got it wrong when he said back to God, am I my brother's keeper? Yes. Yes, you are. You are your brother's keeper. And our concern ought to be to do whatever we can to spend ourselves to help each other Finish well. Look at the sacrifice of Paul and Barnabas on this level. Just try to think about later today. What would it mean to walk 800 miles? Some of this by sea. But go 800 miles to go back through all these towns. That's unbelievable. And then secondly, see with me. What are they doing as they go back? Well, they're strengthening souls. Look at verse 22. They are returning to strengthen the souls of the disciples. Now, in their strengthening work, Paul and Barnabas will have a specific and continual exhortation. They will exhort them or encourage them. We'll get that in a second. But I just want you to think first about the general purpose, strengthening souls. The idea here is to make strong, to establish, to confirm, to cause, to root certain truths like rebar in the heart. Because notice the place of strengthening. The aim is to strengthen the souls of the disciples. The inner man is the target. Christianity is lived out of the heart. For praise to God with the lips while your heart is far away is just hypocrisy. Our faith must govern the command center of our being, the depth of our soul. So if we're to be strengthened to live for Christ, the truth must be rooted in the heart. There must be more than information, though we all need points of knowledge. What Paul and Barnabas are after is truth tenaciously held within and treasured as precious. Now in other places in Paul's writing, the apostle recognizes this strengthening work only occurs by the power of God. In fact, in Romans 16, he'll say, to God, now to Him who is able to strengthen you. Or same root word, 2 Thessalonians 3.3, but the Lord is faithful. He will strengthen and guard you against the evil one. There are other texts, but what they all seem to say is that God is the One who strengthens us. We can't impart strength to ourselves. And no amount of external strength can keep us. And if you don't believe me, look at Samson. Man, that guy could do stuff. And when the Lord leaves him, what does he have? Nothing. He was helpless. That's us. We are weak. We are mere flesh. And we need God to do something within us. But by what means does God strengthen us? How does He make us firm in the soul? The Spirit of God uses the Word of God. Or more particularly, the Spirit of God empowers a preacher to proclaim the Word of God that through the foolishness of the message preached, God would be pleased to save those who believe. As the Word of the cross is proclaimed, we are being saved. We are rooted and established in Christ. You see, as the Word is taught and embraced in the heart, our souls grow strong. So, what is Paul doing to strengthen the souls of the disciples? He's just teaching them the Word over and over and over. The strengthening work here is in the continual tense. Paul is giving them more Scripture. He's tirelessly engaged with sustained effort to show them the riches of Christ and what He requires. He's pressing truth, brethren. He's feeding them on the meat of the Scripture with doctrinal precision and explaining all the intricacies of what the Lord has done and then telling you, believe and walk in this way. This is the pattern to go. Because it's only as the faith is ingested, as the Word is, like Ezekiel was told, eat the scroll. You don't have to eat your Bible this morning. Literally. But it's only as the Word is taken in that faith is nourished. Do y'all remember some of the most successful advertising campaigns in the history of America? Particularly in the 80's and 90's. Just as memorable as... Where's the beef? And Nike's, everybody knows, Just Do It, encapsulated in two slogans for the same product. Milk. It does the body good. Do you remember that? In the 80s? Some of you weren't born yet, but milk, it does the body good. And then there was a question in the 90s. Got milk. Got milk. You remember how ridiculous this was? Some, you know, like Tom Selleck with his mustache covered in milk. Got milk. What was the point of the slogans? Well, one, in the 80s, was more practical. um, Milk strengthens the body. And then in the 90s, it was, you you absolutely have to have it. You got milk, you got to have it. Well, it worked. And milk cells went through the roof. Now, whether or not actually cow's milk does all that they said it would do, that's another subject. But Scripture, recognizing that mother's milk is the way the baby grows, it uses the same metaphor for the Word of God. We need the milk of the Word to crave the preaching of the Scriptures like a newborn baby so that by it we may grow up in salvation. We need to be fed the Word incessantly. So what we need in church is not skits and clown shows. That is really going on. We don't need just a little entertainment with a lesson, no biblical exposition, no doctrine. We don't need sermons replaced with pop psychology or segments from sitcoms with moralisms that have zero doctrinal foundation, that's not Christianity at all. It's legalism with a smile. There's no doctrinal foundation to tell you why you should do what you do. It makes you think you can save yourself by doing a bunch of stuff. We don't need rock concerts and flag teams for Jesus. Again, I'm not making this stuff up. What we need is to be fed the Word line by line, precept by precept, the prophetic cry to the law and to the testimony. We need the conviction that God's Word is sweeter than honey. But then that's what the Apostle Paul is doing. He's giving these people a doctrinal foundation that they will be strengthened. He's helping them understand who Christ is and what He has done. His saving power, His substitutionary death, His sovereign reign as King, His ongoing praying for us that we would survive as Christians. And as the Bible is taught, Paul is relating the grand indicatives of grace. Look at the immeasurable grace of God and then here's how you respond. You're controlled by the love of Christ and you walk worthily of His name. Live for the God who has loved you. Believe that sin is not your master. You are under a new master of the Lord Jesus. The devil can be resisted. The Word has to be treasured and the world has to be pushed aside. These are the fortifying and life-changing truths of the faith. And if we're going to see our souls strengthened, we must feed God's people on the fat pastures of the Word. Brother, that's what we're about. Let us never give in to the pressure of gimmicks that so many churches in our day are captivated by where believers, frankly, are malnourished if they have the faith at all and they're ripe for the devil's assault. Let us see what we need is the Word over and over and over. This is the apostolic way. Now, God by His Spirit imparts power to the heart, but we have to, in we have to engage in endurance, and note how Paul presses that. Verse twenty-two, he encourages them to continue in the faith. <clears throat> We've heard this kind of message from the Apostle Paul previously in Acts thirteen, where he told the people at Pisidian Antioch to continue in the grace of God. We're saved by grace, and we go on in grace. But that grace doesn't make us lazy. Remember, I told you, let go and let God. That's not a verse in the Bible. We don't adopt an attitude of laziness. I trust in Jesus, and it doesn't matter how I live. No, we we are responsible to live in the realm of grace. God's grace fuels our perseverance. God's mercies richly tasted, which give us new life and new desires fire our souls to serve the Lord. We see what Jesus has done. He loved us to the end. All the way to the wretched cross. And then we respond by loving Him to the end. Because we recognize there is such a thing as that rocky ground here. Get excited about the Word of God. Get excited that Jesus cleanses sinners. But then when trouble comes in the way of discipleship, what do they do? They ditch Christ. That's not the way it is to be with God's people. He's encouraging them to continue in the faith. Brethren, Jesus says, and it's a verse that really ought to get your attention, Matthew 24, verse 13, the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. Endurance is required. Now that's not to say that we save ourselves as we endure. No, God began a good work in us and He will carry it to completion. Whenever Jesus comes, He says, none will be cast out. But the work of Christ in us is demonstrated as we endure. And those who fade out, they were phonies. You need to remember that no disciple of Jesus just knew that Judas was a scoundrel. I knew that guy was bad. They didn't know until Judas was unveiled for what he is. And I'm telling you, brethren, Judas didn't wake up one morning and said, you know what? I'm going to be a traitor. That's my aim. No, it happened in a thousand little defections. Indulging hard thoughts of God. Refusing to heed the truth. Feeding his lusts. Judas didn't continue in the faith. He didn't pursue the path that's pleasing to the Lord. Think about the vigorous terms the Bible describes for the life of the Christian. Fighting, running, wrestling, standing in the armor as a soldier. Does that sound passive to you? We're talking about vigorous effort required. It's to remind us all that there's a struggle. The author of Hebrews tells us that we need to be mindful of one another because some of us could possibly come up short and we don't want that to happen, so we're going to stand together and fight together and run together. We press the new disciples onto this duty. And then as Paul presses them, he relates a fact. Verse 22, Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. The kingdom that Paul proclaims is the fact that Jesus reigns. His transforming power has come into this world, reversing the curse, snatching souls from destruction, and keeping them for the day of glory. But the day of glory is not yet. Yes, Jesus has been raised defeating the devil. Yes, Jesus has brought real cleansing to all who believe in Him. Yes, Jesus can assure you of the eternal life you have if you grip Christ by faith. But, we still live in a world of trouble. It is not God's plan, dear friends, as we continue in the faith to move straight from conversion in Christ to glory. It wasn't the Father's plan for Jesus to move straight from his baptism to exaltation and power. The path to glory is one of tribulation. Before the crown comes the cross. That's true for us too. Christianity is cross shaped. It's a life of self denial, taking up our cross and following Jesus. And as we follow Jesus, we encounter Shocker. A hostile world. Tribulations. Plural. Note that. Tribulations. Plural. Literally, squeezings come upon you and they don't come infrequently. Wouldn't it be great if I only had one tribulation I had to deal with in this life? No, Paul says through many tribulations, all different kinds of squeezings, we must enter the kingdom of God. Now, if we're up to you and me, if we were designing the course of the Christian life, We would all love the smooth way. Wouldn't we plot a course to get to heaven with constant peace possessing us? The devil has deceived so many within the church by arguing that Christianity is a life of constant prosperity. If you're going through trouble of any kind, you just don't have enough faith. That is total nonsense. Demonic. And it would suggest that Paul is a lousy Christian. It would say that something's wrong with Jesus because He's a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. But this faulty notion, we know it's wrong, but it plays on our worldly desires for comfort. But Paul is acknowledging here the reality of trouble. And as he acknowledges it, he also comforts us. He says that these disciples, he says to them, that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. I want you to note that word must. It means literally of divine necessity. In other words, the must is of God's doing. Why do you have tribulation? Because God has brought it into your life. The difficulties are not surprising to the Lord as though we're somehow outside of the will of God. Have you heard that? Foolish phrase among those who claim the name of Christ. I just want to be in the will of God. I don't want to be outside the will of God. You can't get outside of the sovereign will of God. Now maybe what you mean is I want to do what God commands. Oh, Okay, but God's in control of everything. You may be surprised at the trouble that you're facing, but God isn't. He designed it. And He uses hardship to sanctify you. John Newton once wrote to him, the author of Amazing Grace, he once wrote to him on this subject, and it's really stirring. I'm going to quote some poetry to you, so try to stick with me. He wrote, I asked the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace. Might more of His salvation know and seek more earnestly His face. Isn't that a great prayer? I asked the Lord that I would grow. That I would seek Him more. And then Newton goes on to say, "'Twas He, the Lord, who taught me thus to pray. And He, I trust, has answered prayer. But it has been in such a way that almost brought me to despair." And then Newton begins to relate the hardships he faces as a praying believer. I'm praying for growth, but Lord, sin assaulted me. I'm praying for growth, but You showed me all the hidden evils of my heart. I'm praying for growth, but the angry powers of hell came against me. And I'm laid, woe. And he cries out in the hymn, Lord, why is this I trembling cried? Will Thou pursue Thy worm to death? Tis in this way, the Lord replied. I answer prayer for grace and faith. You ever heard people say, don't pray for patience. You should pray for patience. And don't be surprised if God tests you to give you more patience. These inward trials I employ, Newton writes, from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou mayest seek thy all in me. Brethren, God brings us trouble, hardship, because He's causing us to know Him more. He's causing us to depend upon Him more. Hardship is not invading your life as though it's outside of God's control. It's divinely shaped to sanctify you. That is the way it must be for the Christian because we're tracing the steps of Jesus. The Lord is burning the dross from your faith. He's taking your faith and He's recognizing that it's like gold that needs to be refined. And as the burning comes, the genuineness of your faith is revealed so that rather than flaking out, you're firmly established. And then the day comes when we enter the kingdom of God. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God here is talking about glory. We will enter, if we're in Christ, the fullness of the kingdom. We will see the day when all the troubles of this life are done and we enter into everlasting glory. The tribulation you face here doesn't hold a candle to the glories that are to come. Our troubles are light and momentary when we weigh them against the eternal weight of glory. What is Paul preaching to these people as he makes the trouble of going back through all these towns? He's saying, brethren, continue in the faith because of what is coming a world of peace, a world of sin, a world of struggle with sin over, a world where the enemies that come against you will be gone, a world with no sorrow, a world with no death. You already taste these blessings because you already have peace with Christ, pardon from sin, security in Jesus. You know that death holds no sting for you. Yes, sorrow will touch you here, but Jesus is your perpetual source of joy so that even when you grieve, you can rejoice in the Lord always. I say again, rejoice. For then Paul wants the believers to remember these things. And I ask you a simple question. How often do you forget those things? All the time. Every day. Do you see why Paul is intent on giving you the Word, who God is, what He has promised over and over and over? Martin Luther was once asked by a parishioner, why do you preach the Gospel every week? Because every week you forget it. Come back to the truth that we need. Hold on to Him. Take it in your heart that you will be fortified to stand firm in the battle of faith. May we take heed to what we're seeing here. May we run the race with endurance. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we do pray that You would help us as we continue to fight in the faith and we pray that we would recognize the means that you use to grow us, that you strengthen us through the word. We pray that we would see your word as sweeter than honey, like milk to enable us to grow up in our salvation. And Lord, as trouble comes, may we not grumble against you. May we not speak as though your providence is foolish. Rather, O oh Lord, help us to accept hard providences and know that you are determined to work our good and Your glory through the struggle. Lord, help us to come alongside each other in this race and persevere as we exhort one another. And we pray it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and all of God's people said, Amen.